Tonight, tied in New Hampshire. Despite a decisive victory, 50% of Iowa Republicans want someone else. Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Haley heads to New Hampshire one-on-one with the MAGA king. Why Trump must win to save his political and legal future. Last chance. Pro-Hamas rioters smash a White House fence, then head to a children's cancer center because of its Jewish roots. Democrats respond by trying to muzzle the Israeli military. And an emboldened Iran attacks the United States consulate in Iraq. We're rallying a global response to push back. Can Jake Sullivan at Davos save us from World War III? And Elon, we have a problem. This cold is brutal, it's, it's draining the battery. I can't even get inside the car. Freezing temperatures sap electric vehicles, leaving drivers out in the cold and the electric revolution on ice. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. We're back in D.C. and first tonight, it's not over. Last night's Iowa caucus started the Republican primary. It did not end it. The candidates still have a long way to go before crossing the finish line at the GOP convention this summer in Milwaukee. Yes, Trump won a decisive victory. And last night, he sounded not like a guy trying to win a primary, but a general election candidate. The big night is going to be in November when we take back our country and truly we do make our country great again. But a new poll from American Research Group shows Trump and Haley tied in New Hampshire. She's risen 11 percentage points in less than a month. And yes, Trump did win 98 of 99 counties in Iowa. But for one vote in a college town, he would have won all 99. And with that, CNN has declared the race effectively over. Remind people, Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. You made the point earlier that that the, watch, the Biden campaign watching this tonight, they want this settled. They want to see Donald Trump as the front runner. Well, the Biden campaign and CNN, for that matter, wants Trump as the nominee. It's great for CNN's ratings and lets them cut away from his speeches, as they did last night, so their anchors can make sanctimonious speeches of their own. We have an invasion of millions and millions of people that are coming into our country. I can't imagine why they think that's a good thing. Donald Trump declaring victory with a historically strong showing in the Iowa caucuses. All right, so let's be fair about this. If we think about the Iowa map, Trump won all but one county. He should have. He won Iowa by eight points against Joe Biden. And now... Only 50% of Republican voters want him to be the nominee. A great boss of mine once told me to always look at the other side of any number. Yes, he won 50, 51% of the vote. That means half of Republicans who bothered to caucus in the middle of freezing temperatures didn't want him to be the nominee. Iowa as a state is ready-made for Trump. It's a rural state, high evangelicals, below average nationally, in college education, average income. These are Trump's people. And yet only 50% of the people who showed up won him. We start tonight with Eric Erickson, host of The Eric Erickson Show, and author of arguably the best 
conservative morning newsletter. It says in the script, arguably, we're going to take that out. It is the best conservative morning newsletter. Uh, Eric, it's good to see you. You sent out a missive this morning. It's Donald Trump's party. How could it be your party when you only get 50 percent? Well, you know, I think the other side of the number is actually negative 14. Um, when Trump is winning in every poll, the Seltzer poll had him coming out, that's the one people pay attention to with such a dominant leave. I, there were a lot of people, including Trump supporters, who didn't want to brave that weather. Uh, yeah, certainly there's an enthusiasm gap. I don't think we should be dismissive of it. And we should note that in uh, suburban precincts where Ron DeSantis went, did well, the common pattern was college-educated evangelicals. So Trump still got issues in the suburbs and in college towns. But, yeah, I, I do think the base turned out, and it is Donald Trump's party. Uh, when you look at the polling average, the pollsters are nailing pretty good, which means he's probably going to win New Hampshire as well. Well, you say probably. We've still got a week. Nikki Haley is now up with an ad criticizing Donald Trump. We'll get to that later. But I think about the turnout in Iowa. We've been told over and over, and by, by you as well, how fired up the Republican Party is, how angry people are at Joe Biden. Yet in a grassroots Republican state where people are angry, uh, they've, got, they've got this first-in-the-nation caucus. They've spent months being courted by these candidates, more than $100 million spent, and yet 110,000 voters participated. Just under 15% of the state's 752,000 registered Republicans. How do you explain that? A, a couple of things. One is the inevitability factor that uh, most people, the vocal ones, dismiss the polls. Most people think that Trump is inevitable, so why turn out in negative 14 degree temperature? Also, the complete collapse of the DeSantis never backed down ground game there. Uh, he certainly defied his polling average, so clearly he had some effort there. But he was not able to mobilize the people he expected to mobilize. Uh, the older people turned out, younger people didn't. That mm. does that's dissatisfaction among younger voters with the slate of candidates, not just Trump. But overall, it's the people are treating him as an incumbent. And there's never enthusiasm in an incumbent Iowa caucus. We're looking right now live pictures in New Hampshire where Vivek Ramaswamy has taken the stage to introduce uh, Donald Trump, the person he was running against up until um, last night. Do you agree with Nikki Haley that this is a two-person race between her and Donald Trump, uh, asterisk, if she can win New Hampshire? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, Nikki Haley's the only one left with money. She's the only one left with an organization in New Hampshire that could possibly take him on. She's gotten very close. We actually don't know the effect of Chris Christie getting out of the race yet. I've always been skeptical of ARG, not just this year. I always have been. So I yeah. want to see other polls. Fair enough. Theirs. But at the same time, the DeSantis campaign has collapsed. Um, they're behind him. They're behind Trump in Florida right now. Uh, they're out of money. Their consultants are already backbiting him on the record, which is kind of the uh, epitome of a campaign that's at its last leg. So Nikki Haley's the last woman standing against Trump. Help us understand, and I, I, keep, I keep coming back to this because I, too, was really surprised last night for a minute about, about Trump's number. And then I was not surprised um, in, in that it was only 50 percent. And when you think about Nikki Haley in Iowa getting 20 percent, Ron DeSantis at, at about the same. Uh, if, if Nikki Haley, if that last Des Moines Register poll had not come out, and Nikki Haley's people were telling me this in the line at the airport this morning, they were headed to New Hampshire. Uh, if that poll had not come out showing her in second place and she had gotten 18 um, percent off a poll of 15 percent, which was a week before, 
everybody would be talking about Nikki's rise today. No, you're absolutely right. Um, Nikki Haley's rise is something people should be talking about. Uh, she's done it um, in, less online than the other campaigns. Uh, she's more out there with people. You get the sense if you're on social media that DeSantis has the dominant campaign. Nikki Haley's campaign isn't really there. They're out connecting with voters. She has run an impressive campaign. And keep in mind, Nikki Haley does have a pattern of, of beating front runners. That's how she became governor in South yeah. Carolina. If she can do this in New Hampshire, it will reset the race. I'm just not optimistic because I tend to believe the polling averages. You say not optimistic. That sounds like a man who would like to see it happen. Yeah, I actually would like to see someone other than Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump can win in November. I just think the Republicans have a great shot at taking the Senate and the House, and he will be so resource intensive because of all his legal bills that it'll deprive Senate and House races of money that if it was Nikki or DeSantis, they would not be as resource intensive for outside donors in the RNC. They'd be an easier lift. It's always fascinating to have you on because you take it two or three steps um, farther out. Uh, the knock on Nikki Haley, right? And, and we're now seeing Donald Trump's folks, Jason Miller on the record now attacking her directly, uh, take aim. In New Hampshire, and this is a state you know well, um, how important, I'm guessing, is Donald Trump going after her in this sense? It might be a good thing. Does it not energize some of the independents, some of the sort of uh, more John McCain-like, if you will, Republicans in New Hampshire? That's very much the danger for Trump in doing this because the New Hampshire electorate is not like Iowa or even South Carolina. It is much more moderate, highly college oh, hold educated. On, hold, Eric, hold on one second. We're just going to dip into Donald Trump. He's talking about Nikki Haley right now. Your speech last night, I thought it was inappropriate, but because it's bad for unity, it's bad for the party, what she said. But you'd almost think she won. She came in third, and she lost to not a particularly great candidate, obviously, as you've seen. She lost to somebody that uh, beat her by about two and a half points, Rhonda Sanctimonious. So, so uh, I'll tell you, we have these two people. We really got to get back on to Biden and beating the Democrats and not wasting a lot of time with these two. Uh, hey, Eric, the last question for you. I think it's fascinating. Last night when Donald Trump had a national audience, he knew the American people for the first time, sort of not the politicos, not not people who are deeply interested, but for the first time on network television are going to be turning in. He sounded like a general election candidate. He was complimentary. Uh, he called Ron DeSantis Ron DeSantis for the first time in a long time. And now he's back on the stump and he's he's right down. He's back punching down. Look, he expected everybody to get out last night with a commanding performance in Iowa, and they didn't. So he'll go back into campaign mode, but he's highly transactional. When they drop out, he'll sing all their praises, including to Sanctimonious. <laughs> uh, and we will, we will wait uh, for when that happens. Eric, it's good to see you as always. Thank you for the time. We appreciate it. Reasonable people. Was, uh, we will put Eric Erickson among them. Can agree. Nikki Haley's last stand is in New Hampshire. She landed there about 4 a.m. this morning and then started airing this commercial. Two most disliked politicians in America, Trump and Biden, both are consumed by chaos, negativity, and grievances of the past. The better choice for a better America? Nikki Haley. And with us now, Kelly Laco, Executive Director of Politics for the Daily Mail, Real Clear Politics White House correspondent, Phil Wegman. Kelly, first to you. Uh, is that enough of a direct attack on Donald Trump? She's literally in New Hampshire, uh, mano y mano, excuse the phrase. 
I think Nikki Haley's campaign and the Ron DeSantis campaign are, are kind of facing a reckoning right now. Either they have to ramp it up and beat Trump in a poll, or else their campaigns are dead. So I think we're going to see, you know, a little bit more forceful ads on both sides. We're going to see a little bit more, you know, anger, anger coming out of their campaigns as they hit back at Donald Trump and they try to make their own case um, for why voters should vote for them in New Hampshire. And uh, Nikki Haley's campaign today, um, as you mentioned earlier, they're focusing on a new poll out that shows her neck and neck with Trump at 40 percent. And I think that's an important statistic. That's removing Chris Christie from the equation. And that's really the first poll that shows where those Chris Christie voters will be headed. And it seems as though that they may be headed to to back up Nikki Haley. And if that happens, she could pull ahead in that case. Yeah, that's always been the thought is that Chris Christie voters second choice was was Nikki Haley. I think this dynamic between Haley and DeSantis is fascinating because Haley's punching up at Donald Trump, which makes sense. That's the person to beat. DeSantis is punching down at Nikki Haley. Here he was, not in New Hampshire, but in South Carolina uh, earlier today. Take a listen. All right, we don't have it, but uh, he said, like Haley, look, she's been governor for six years. You can name major achievements under her tenure. I mean, if there are any, because she hasn't been able to do it. Phil, is he trying to almost find a way to get back in Donald Trump's good graces by staying in and playing this attack uh, on Nikki Haley, playing the attack dog? Oh, I wouldn't take it that far. I mean, the impression that I got from the governor when I sat down with him in Iowa in December is that he really did think that he had a chance to win Iowa. Remember, they pushed all of their chips in on that state. Of course, it didn't go the way that he wanted but uh, the theory of the case now for DeSantis, he sort of ditched the traditional political itinerary. He's not going to New Hampshire where he's not pulling well. Instead, he's going to South Carolina, parachuting to her backyard uh, to keep it close there. And we heard him talk to reporters on the ground there also and say that he's keeping things competitive in Nevada where she's not competing for delegates. So this is rear guard action from DeSantis. I, I think the main takeaway here, uh, whether or not he can survive uh, past uh, Iowa, is that this is not the race he wanted to run. He wanted it to have cleared the field. He wanted a, a one-on-one race with uh, Trump. That didn't happen. And so now he's still trying to push Haley out. Kelly, look, it's no secret that Donald Trump wants more people in the race. The more people in the race, the more muddy the waters when he goes one-on-one. And we saw this happen in 2016. Then you have to compete, like you did with Ted Cruz at the end. Um, fair to say the Trump campaign's a lot more scared, at least as I understand it from talking to folks, of Nikki Haley than they are of Ron DeSantis. I think at this point, it's sort of the Trump campaign is is focused on knocking them both out. They're getting their campaigns all over the TV networks today. Yesterday at Iowa caucuses, all of Trump's main donors and supporters are saying, hey, why are Haley and DeSantis even in this race anymore? You know, they they 30 points behind him in Iowa. They're pulling well behind him in, in many of the polls in New Hampshire, South Carolina as well. And so I think his strategy right now is knock them out, knock them out hard and I think we're going to see that from his campaign moving forward. Um, and on the flip side, Haley and DeSantis, you know, this is really their, their last lifeline heading into yeah. New Hampshire. And then we see if they, they even make it uh, to Super Tuesday. Look, New Hampshire, like Iowa, gives you the option to register on the same day. You're able to, to show up and say, hey, I'm a Democrat or I'm an independent. I want to either caucus or primary, in the case of New Hampshire, um, as a Democrat. Uh, and that happened in the county that Nikki Haley won. Big turnout all of a sudden of newly registered uh, Republicans. Uh, Here is one Iowa Democrat who caucused for Haley. Take a listen. Well, 
choice between um, uh, Biden losing to Trump and Nikki Haley beating Biden. I would take Nikki Haley beating Biden any day over Biden losing to Trump. Phil, what's the dynamic going to be like in New Hampshire? I'm almost wondering if, in terms of enthusiasm and turnout and everything else, for people who are Trump agnostic, Trump sort of, eh, whatevers, uh, or Trump haters, if this is not extraordinarily invigorating to them in New Hampshire. So right now, I'm incredibly skeptical of any candidate who says, without a, a shadow of the doubt, that they know where their supporters might go. And, uh, you know, when I talked to Governor DeSantis, that caveat said, he, he said that uh, he didn't think that his supporters would back up Haley, that instead they would migrate to Trump. That's an open question. We'll see if it's true. Governor Chris Sununu, who's Haley's big surrogate there in New Hampshire, he is of the opinion, like you mentioned earlier, that Chris Christie's folks are going to migrate to her. So, you know, we're, we're going to figure out where everybody ends up. But the thing that's so interesting about New Hampshire is that if you look at the polling, uh, Trump, he obviously won in Iowa by double digits. He's ahead in South Carolina. He's ahead in Nevada. New Hampshire is the one state where one of these candidates, Nikki Haley, who is surging on the strength of attracting a lot of these moderates and independents, something that she wants to keep on going, is actually within the margin of error and not just in the ARG poll, uh, but in you know the University of New Hampshire poll. If there is going to be a challenge and, and not a coronation, it has to start in New Hampshire. She has to build momentum there right. and go to South to, Carolina. I think it has to start with a win, too, right? Mm -hmm. You, right. you, you have to have something to change the narrative here. Win, win, win or go home. Hey, it's great to see you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it, as always. Thank you. Coming up next, Jewish students are suing Harvard for failing to keep them safe on campus. How their case might change college for everybody. And drivers left out in the cold when below zero temperatures leave EVs stranded. They don't do well in hurricanes. They don't do well when it's hot or when it's cold. So why are they the future? They definitely got to work on it because I'm out of this test laughter today. I'm not going to ride it again. You'd rather go back to gas. I'd rather go back to gas. Absolutely. Thousands of pro-Hamas rioters tried to break into the White House over the weekend. The Secret Service had to come out and reinforce the fence meant to keep them out. No arrests made, but part of the White House had to be evacuated. They could be heard chanting, Yemen, Yemen, make us proud, in support of the Iranian-backed rebels who've been attacking Israel and U.S. Navy ships. Folks with similar feelings took to the streets outside a cancer hospital. Here you go. All right, so they were chanting intifada, that's the killing of Jews, not just in Israel, but around the world, outside of a cancer hospital. They were chanting about scaring sick kids. Then today, they filled the Capitol Rotunda with these chants. These are just, of course, the, the latest protests, riots in some cases. 
We've been seeing tape like this for months. This October, weeks after the Hamas attacks on Israel, groups started targeting Jewish students at Harvard University. Now some of those students are suing, saying they have faced a campaign of rampant anti-Semitism on campus. Joining us now, Shabbos Kestenbaum, one of the students being represented in the lawsuit, Bacha Unger Sargon, opinion editor at Newsweek. Uh, Shabbos, want to start with you. Uh, Harvard's endowment is $50.8 billion. Uh, that is larger than the gross domestic product, meaning the entire economy of Jordan, Tunisia, and Libya. You think they're afraid of a lawsuit from you guys? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. They never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. We gave them plenty of time to correct the record for them to tell us what they were going to do to protect Jewish students. We know that Qatar is a large, large donor to Harvard University and something that our lawyers and the team will be investigating. But certainly, as you mentioned, we have students who are praising and in many cases identifying with terrorists like the Houthis, like Hezbollah, like Hamas. We have asked Harvard to intercede and to protect you with students, they've said nothing. Look, we all get back to campus on Monday, and many of us are, are petrified. We do not know what campus will look like when Harvard cannot guarantee our physical safety, and that's what this lawsuit seeks to address. I like the Abba Ibn uh, quote uh, about the Palestinians, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, Bacha, put this in a larger perspective for us, because it seemed as though perhaps this was sort of calming down a little bit over the holidays. Now you see what happened at the White House. Um, there's now talk of federal workers, quote unquote, walking out uh, over U.S. support of Israel. Where where is this headed? Yeah, so there's a sort of permanent revolving door of leftist elites that permeates the universities, our political classes, and then, of course, all the ancillary rules to our political classes. And I think that that is really the message um, of this walkout is less, you know, whether or not federal workers should be allowed to protest the government and more this is who President Joe Biden has staffed his entire administration with, people from these elites who are extremely anti-Israel, um, who are extremely woke, who have gone to elite universities like Harvard, where they picked up this nonsense from their professors. I do have to say, with all due respect to Shabbos, and I know what you're going through, I myself was personally protested for being Jewish. Um, I, to me, Jewish students demanding the kind of safetyist protections of other minority students is sort of a miss here, because the problem here is not that intersectionality doesn't rank Jews high enough on the oppression scale. The problem is really that there is an oppression scale. And, and I personally think that it would be much more powerful for Jewish students to say, look, we don't need these kinds of protections. We actually can stay in an environment where we disagree with people. No, I, I guess this would be my question about whether it's a, there's a difference between being able to disagree and having protests on, on, on both sides, because that is a fundamental right in America. And I think about the video outside the White House uh, as an example. Uh, and I don't know if we can put it side by side, but we'll put the video up outside of the White House, for example. If these people had been wearing MAGA hats uh, and being out and outside an abortion clinic, for example, we can imagine the number of arrests, right? This is the second time. Uh, there's a reason the anti-scale fencing is up outside the White House, because the Secret Service thought this would get violent. They had to evacuate the White House. And Chavez, I'm wondering, to, to Botch's point, are you asking for an end to any kind of protests about Palestinians, or are you end asking for an end and protection from threats of violence? Because there is a difference. Yeah. 
Uh, on the contrary, I not only welcome that type of political exercise and intellectual debate, that's something that I've asked for since October 7th. I'll give you just a quick anecdote. Uh, during the aftermath of Hamas's uh, brutal invasion and the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, I reached out to those at the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Committee saying, let's talk about our differences in a public yet respectful dialogue. And they said, we can't legitimize your narrative and we're not going to give you a platform. So this idea that Harvard or institutions of higher learning in the United States have become these places where we can have this debate and dialogue is just not true anymore. Students do not want to engage with opinions that they don't like. We see that every single day at Harvard University. So our attitude is, okay, let's play by their own rules. If they want to implement a system of DEI and of protection and everyone needs to feel safe and protected, then you better make sure damn well that you're doing the same with Jewish students. And it's objectively the case that they haven't. And that's why we're so upset. Bacha, the one thing that I think has been lost all along in this conversation, I shouldn't say all along, in the first few weeks it it wasn't lost, but it is lost now, uh, is the conversation about the hostages. Over the weekend, while the world was focused on politics, or America was at least, uh, Hamas released the names of three hostages and said, you're going to learn their fate uh, the next day, and then released um, another video. I'm wondering... And I, I can't figure out why. I, I can, but I'll let you explain it. Why this storyline about the hostages has completely gone away? I think it's because neither side really wants to talk about it. Um, the left, which supports Hamas, obviously doesn't want to talk about it because it humanizes the Jewish victims. But I think also there's a problem for Israel, which, as you've discussed very clearly, Leland, from the beginning, the aims of Israel in its operation in Gaza have always been attention with each other. Eviscerating Hamas, which is, of course, a moral imperative, has always been intention with rescuing every single hostage that they can. And so it's a very difficult thing to talk about. I have to say this disgusting Hamas video was made for TikTok, which is an arm of the Chinese Communist Party, which has sided with Hamas from the beginning of this conflict. It is so disgusting. But again, to that revolving door, there is a new nexus of evil, and it is the Chinese Communist Party with TikTok, Iran with Hamas and Hezbollah, and the American university system. All of these people are working in concert to destroy Hmm. America, and they're all deeply anti-Semitic. Yeah, well, I I think you're right in terms of the way uh, that they are interacting. and we've been continuing to report on it. Bacha, you've done some great work on it as well. Shabbos, um, you say classes start on Monday. Let us know how things go once you get back to campus, all right? Will do. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Coming up next, after his historic win in Iowa, Democrats look for new ways to stop Donald Trump. What if trying to stop Donald Trump is Democrats' problem? See you in a minute. Not enough to talk about, but they're coming in from prisons and jails. They're coming in from mental institutions and insane asylums. Insane asylum, that's a step beyond. That's Silence of the Lambs. That's Hannibal Lecter. Did you ever hear of Hannibal Lecter? They're being dropped into our country. Hannibal Lecter is coming in. All right, Donald Trump talking about the border in some quite colorful terms on the stump in New Hampshire. It's a little different, Donald Trump than what we heard last night in Iowa after his big win, he, he took on a very different tone, really tried to sound like a general election candidate during his victory speech in Des Moines. I really think this is time now for everybody 
our country to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. In a new poll from YouGov, he, along with Haley DeSantis, all beat Joe Biden by varying numbers. Trump beats him by two points. Of course, the national horse race numbers, well, they don't really matter that much. We learned that in 2016. We learned that in 2000, for that matter. In the swing state of Georgia, Trump now beats Biden by eight points. Trump lost the state in 2020. And that's despite the storms that Trump has weathered brought by Democrats over the years, including quite a few ongoing legal challenges. He was impeached and acquitted of soliciting foreign interference in the 2016 election. He was impeached and acquitted for events surrounding January 6th, impeached and acquitted for the Ukraine situation. He was later indicted for his actions leading up to January 6th. Then came the indictment in the classified documents probe, followed by an indictment for the state of Georgia, by the state of Georgia for election interference, faced the Stormy Daniels hush money case, and of course the ongoing case over claims he inflated the assets of his New York organization, his New York businesses. With us now, George Will, News Nation senior political contributor, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the Washington Post. It's amazing. It feels as though Democrats would learn that the more they attack Donald Trump, the more they would get this person who they call a threat to democracy. It's almost like they enjoy it. It's also a terrible confession that they say, they, this is the only man Biden can beat. Everyone can, can tickle that from there. And you listen to Trump, it's hilarious for him to say it's time for us to come together. This is a man who's been calling his opponents vermin up until recently. This is a man who says, it's over, let's stop. After a tiny minority of the Iowa population has voted, and the Iowa population is less than 1% of the national population. New Hampshire's is half of that. By the time South Carolina has voted, 3% of the country will have been heard from. It's a little early to call the game. No, look, there's no question he wants to call the game. The question I, I keep coming back to is for as much of the hand-wringing uh, about Donald Trump by Democrats, I think they'd like to call the game as well. Oh, they would, certainly. If the Biden administration and the progressive prosecutors around the country and Merrick Garland's Justice Department were trying to nominate Donald Trump, how would they behave differently? It seems to me clearly that they are trying to pick Biden's opponent. Biden's approval rating sits at 31%. Last ABC News survey, the lowest on record for a president in the past 15 years. The flip side of this would be that if the Democratic Party was worried about someone like a Nikki Haley actually having a rise, or they could not ordain through what we've talked about, Donald Trump as the nominee, they would be forced to then reconsider, at least, Joe Biden. If Trump's margin increases, you said he's two points ahead. That's the margin of error. So statistically, he's tied with Biden. Haley's beating Biden by 15, 16, 17 points. Depends really at this point on how focused is the Republican nominating electorate on winning in November? Or is this, are they in it for the pure fun of being tribal together? That's what I can't figure out, is for a Republican base that says they are so angry about Joe Biden and what Joe Biden is doing to the country. And reasonable people can agree that there's, we got some problems here, whether it be the border, whether it be national security, we'll get to later, on and on and on. 
Yet that same electorate seems relatively unconcerned with picking the person who's most likely to beat Joe Biden. The question is, will they stay that way? And, and here's the, the Haley campaign's path forward. You win New Hampshire, and you puncture the sense of inevitability that is surrounding. Voters hate inevitability. They hate being told the game is over and they're, they're going through the motions. Then if she can win in South Carolina on the 24th, I believe, of February, 10 days later, Leland, Super Tuesday, half, more than half the number needed to nominate of delegates, that's 1,215, more than half that number will be selected that one day, 10 days after South Carolina. Now suppose that 10 days after South Carolina, the country has been looking around saying, the air is leaking out of that balloon. He's not inevitable any more than he's as rich as he says he was. We'll see. That explains perhaps a, a unique confluence of interests of Democrats who would love nothing more than to run against Donald Trump, and Donald Trump would love nothing more than to be uh, the nominee. Mr. Will? Good to see you. It'll be a fun ride. Good to see you, sir. Coming up next, as we said, big problems for national security. Missiles shot at a U.S. consulate in Iraq, U.S. shipping in the Red Sea, and the biggest fight brewing in Washington is with our strongest ally in the region, Israel. We'll take you to Switzerland, where the Biden foreign policy team hopes to right the ship. What more could go wrong? before the October 7th attack. So let's just quickly review the past few days and what Mr. Sullivan is dealing with. The U.S. coordinated a targeted attack with the United Kingdom against the Houthi rebels. That's the Iranian-backed group in Yemen. It didn't work. Iran proceeded to attack the United States and used Houthi rebels to hit a U.S.-flagged ship. Iran keeps smuggling weapons to the Houthis. These weapons on the were confiscated by the United States on a ship headed from Iran to Yemen. Sadly, two Navy SEALs fell overboard, and despite massive search and rescue operations, the SEALs have disappeared into the Gulf of Aden. Joining us now, Representative Michael Waltz, member of the House Armed Services Committee, Foreign Affairs and Intelligence Committee, former Green Beret himself. Um, good to see Congressman. Thank you. Uh, look, there's, there's the issue of the SEALs. Um, they, they went up to, to get on this boat. Um, one one got knocked off in the waves. The other one jumped in. Tragic situation. In a larger sense, I'm wondering why a sense of deterrence has not been established against Iran that says you don't do this stuff um, and you don't take pot shots at the U.S. Navy or U.S. flag boats or the U.S. consulate in Iraq. Well, I think the simple answer, Leland, is uh, is. Iran, Tehran, the Ayatollahs believe that, you know, we can have uh, all the U.S. and coalition military capability we want in the region. Uh, but if they don't believe that there's a political will in this White House to use it in the way that actually makes Iran, not its proxies, but Iran itself feel pain, then they believe they can get away with it. And they are uh, from attacks all over our bases in Iraq and Syria uh, to shutting down shipping lanes with a, a ragtag group, the Houthis, uh, to surrounding Israel with a ring of fire, uh, which is what the Ayatollah has repeatedly stated he's going to do. And they are doing uh, so they're achieving their goals right now. But it's because they don't believe we have the political will to do a thing like strike one of their field generals, Soleimani, or do what Reagan did, which was sink half the Iranian Navy after they dared to strike one of our ships. 
I think about what Jake Sullivan was saying at Davos, and this is sort of the idea of a, a, a greater world uh, order, if you will. That was sort of the promise of, promise of Davos. Uh, the humiliation of Davos, man, he isn't taking over the world. He's pleading with the world to trust him. That was uh, Walter Russell Mead today. Um, in the Wall Street Journal. I'm wondering if the only reason things like Davos are possible is with a strong United States and if Jake Sullivan is not sort of propagating a world based on Davos with the United States there rather than Davos because the United States allows it to exist. Yeah, I mean, the, the simple fact is that Davos, the world order, Bretton Woods, dollar is the reserve, reserve currency, uh, you know, the, the liberal, little L liberal world order that has, uh, that has propagated global prosperity since World War II, the fact is has been underwritten by American economic, military, and diplomatic strength. Uh, and when both our allies and adversaries believe that's on the decline uh, and in behind closed doors, the group around Biden is talking about managing that decline, then yeah, it, I, I think it's no, you know, it should be no surprise to anyone while, uh, why authoritarianism sees opportunity right now and why it's on the march. And seizing the opportunity. Congressman, it's good to see you as always. Thank you, sir. We appreciate uh, the perspective. A lot more on this tomorrow in War Notes. Gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m., We'll also have a lot more on our coverage in New Hampshire. Warnotes.com, subscribe for free to get a look at our thoughts on the most important stories of the day. Next, the back to the office movement has hit a snag. Workers just can't get along with each other. It's gotten so bad, some employers are bringing in etiquette and relationship experts. We'll bring in one of our own when we come back. P-I-G pig. See if you can guess what I am now. I'm a zit. Get it? You expect Animal House-like behavior at college, not at work. But apparently during the pandemic, many of us somehow became Bluto. We went back to caveman-like tendencies. Thus, a new demand for etiquette and manners consulting by companies. The Swan School of Protocol founder Elaine Swan told the LA Times before the pandemic she would train staff etiquette at companies once or twice a month. Now she gets four to six requests. Keynote speaker, nationally regarded etiquette expert Thomas P. Farley. Mr. Manners is here with us now, all right, you know, look, banners have been sort of declining right over time. Um, you know, sir and ma'am kind of went out the window a while ago, uh, much to my father and grandmother's chagrin. But did the pandemic accelerate it or did we actually kind of like regress as humans? Leland, I think we're dealing with two very specific issues in the workplace at the moment. And the first is for those who've been out in the workforce for multiple decades, they started to get a little bit sloppy. So the way they dress, the way they carry themselves, the idea of showing up disappeared even as a concept. Uh, you were suddenly on Zoom and maybe you didn't even turn on your camera, let alone put on your, your, work, your workaday clothing. So that's the first issue. And I think people really got out of practice. And 
all the studies are showing that hybrid work really is our new norm for white collar America. So you're perhaps two days from home, three days in the office. So we have this, this mix that's really kind of taken us out of our game. The second factor, and this is a big one, and I would say this is the preponderance of the work that I do with Business Training Works, is that young people, so we're talking Generation Z, those who came of age and moved into the workforce at the peak of the pandemic, they simply never have had that five-day-a-week corporate experience upon which to draw when it comes to, I'm not talking about teacups and sticking your pinky in the air and going to cotillions. This is not the etiquette that we're talking about. It's professional polish. So how to carry yourself in every interaction so that you show yourself to be capable, confident, and professional. And that's the focus of these programs. I'm almost wondering, though, in, you know, the, the, there is a work-from-home class in America, right? There's sort of this elite class that has this. But I'm even thinking about for just people getting, I don't want to say this, but normal jobs, just beginning jobs, starting out jobs, that showing up, taking pride, all of those lessons that were instilled by our parents – where did all of those get lost? Because I feel like, you know, writing the thank you notes went out a long time ago. How did we lose that other, that other element? I think technology takes a lot of the blame, and rightly so. And along with technology, I would loan social media. So when we look at, again, Generation Z and even younger millennials, these are the first generations who literally don't care about getting a driver's license. They're happy to stay home and interact with their friends virtually. It's not about getting into the car and driving off to the mall or going to the movies. So as we're doing less and less, especially for young people, but all generations, frankly, doing less and less in person, the idea of interacting in a professional way is I'm going to interrupt you uh, because the computer will cut us off. Uh, otherwise, I would never interrupt an etiquette, etiquette, etiquette teacher, Mr. Farley. Thank you. Uh, yeah, all generations are making it about themselves. Stop thinking about others. The golden rule. Here's Chris. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. The big night is going to be in November when we take back our country and truly we do make our country great again. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo, former President Donald Trump. Nothing nasty to say because he had an historic win last night in Iowa. But there were some. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 